Welcome to the Insight Podcast. My guest today is Adrian Bethune. Adrian is the founder of Teach Happy, a company whose mission is to help teachers and children lead happier, healthier lives. He's also the author of the book, Wellbeing in the Primary Classroom, a practical guide to teaching happiness. And he's the deputy chair of Well Schools. Now, I always enjoy catching up with Adrian. Uh, he's one of the few rational, positive voices when it comes to well-being in schools. And it was a privilege talking to someone who I agree with on so many levels. I've also never laughed so hard with a guest as I did with him after I afterwards um, stopped recording, um, which is a, a conversation that neither of us are quite ready to put out into the world yet. But yeah, what we did record was equally enlightening, fun and practical. We talk about the things on Twitter that make Adrian and me cringe, true happiness and the hedonic treadmill, stickers, sweets and certificates as rewards, teacher well-being, systemic change versus personal responsibility, the one thing Adrian would change about primary schools, and much more. Enjoy the episode. So welcome to the show, Adrian. Thanks for having me, Sam. Really pleased to be chatting with you today. So you're one of the few people who don't make me cringe when I see you posting about well-being in education. You know, when you share things on Twitter, I'm like, I'm nodding along instead of like putting my head in my hands. Um, why do you think that is? Um, I think I think because I can relate to, to what you're saying. There is a lot in the in the world of well-being that makes me cringe, and. A- ages ago, a teacher on Twitter or X um, accidentally tweeted me, um, thinking he was DMing a friend, and he said um, something like, "Adrian's a nice guy, but he talks about fluffy well-being nonsense," and that really annoyed me because that is exactly what I don't talk about. Um, like wh- when I talk about well-being, what interests me? Like I'm quite a logical person. Mm. And I, I am actually natu- naturally sceptical when someone says something, it can be anything, and it seems too good to be true or, you know, something really positive. I'm always like, I don't believe it. Like, that's my instinct. And so what I found really compelling about the, the kind of field of well-being research that I delve into, and it's sometimes called the science of well-being, positive psychology, the science of happiness, is that it's, you know, based on thousands of empirical studies now. Um, I don't think many people know that Oxford University, where teachers would be super proud if some of their kids, you know, ended up there, has a well-being research centre. You know, you've got professors and academics studying what is it that contributes to human well-being. Oxford University also has the Oxford Mindfulness Research Centre. Uh, Cambridge University has a well-being institute. The London School of Economics, Warwick, like all of these different universities have well-being research centers and it's it's a multidisciplinary field so psychologists neuroscientists behavioral scientists economists all carrying out various experiments to look at what is it that contributes to human well-being what is it that gets in the way and i think when i talk about well-being i always try and share some of the research some of the science and then you know, what are the practical ideas? What are the implications? How can we turn this into action in our personal lives or in our classrooms? And so, yeah, I think hopefully that is what makes you not cringe. I- I've had people come up to me after like a staff training session in school. And this to me is like the best feedback that I can get. Someone will say, oh, I saw well-being on the agenda of our inset today. And I was like, I just didn't want to turn up. And I rolled my eyes. and you know, your talk was actually really good and it's and it's it's changed my mind and it's convinced me and actually I've written down a couple of the books to, mm-hmm. to buy and read. And I think great, like that's I, I the best feedback for me is is turning around cynics basically that that saw well being on the agenda, think, oh God, I'd rather just have time in my classroom and then actually get something out of the session and and it's whetted their appetite to, to read more, find out more. That's it. Yeah. I read your posts. I've seen your course. I've read your books. And this is the thing. It's, it, 
it makes sense. It's kind of, it's an holistic approach. It's kind of t- contextual. It's all these different things. Um, you, you can understand why people are put off by the well-being, by the word well-being, because of what's shared out yeah. there. And, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, some of the things I see that are hashtag well-being, I mean, it's like a big mug filled with chocolates and sweets. And it's saying, this is great mm. for my well-being. Or what was another example? I can't think now, but but little things like that. And that, I just, like, that's a lovely gesture, isn't it? It's a lovely gesture. A teacher came up to me because on Tuesday, I was absolutely, I'd been to Stockholm at the weekend. I was absolutely shattered. Turned yeah. up on Monday morning and kind of rode the adrenaline of Monday morning and then got to Tuesday and I hit a wall. And a teacher came in and just bought mm. me two little, like, celebrations chocolate bars. I was like, that's really nice, you know, just a nice little sweet yeah. treat gesture. But I didn't post it on Twitter saying this is great for my well-being because it's not great for yeah, my well-being. Yeah. It's just a nice little gesture. There are things that are good yeah. for my well-being that that you post about. You you talk about the, the you know the whole myriad of things that we can do to improve our well-being in terms of psychology, our approach to life, moving our bodies, nature. That's why I don't cringe when I see what you post. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But the the same, Sam, like when I see those posts, oh, like there's a couple of things. One, the performative nature of well-being. Yes. Like well-being, supporting our colleagues' well-being is not about doing something to then think, I'm going to take a picture of this and I'm going to share it to my thousands of followers. Like just do it. Yes. Like if, you know, if I see a colleague that's like got their head in their hands and it's after school and I make them a cuppa and just saying, just made you a cup of tea because I'm making myself on you okay. And, you know, that that's just good common sense and good camaraderie. Like, I don't need to make a post about it. So there's the performative nature that I think erodes the original act. And because it, it, it's then, is this about the other person or is this about you? And then the second thing is a lot of the ideas, I think this, this has been an issue with me getting into primary school teaching from day one. So I worked for several years in the music industry mm. and, you know, <laughs> then I got into to primary school teaching. And one thing I noticed was like the infantilization of teachers. So like you are quite often talked to as if you are a child, you are treated as if you are a child just to give a very practical example, first school, talking to a colleague, it was assembly, children were meant to come in quietly or silently, ready for assembly to start. And, you know, teachers would often just talk to each other, not like having a conversation about the weekend, but, you know, oh, have you noticed like Charlie over there is like only got one shoe on, you know, whatever it is. And like the head told us off in a staff meeting later that week, like teachers, you are not allowed to talk because you're setting the wrong example to the kids coming in, right? On one level, I get it. We've got to role model the behaviors we expect to see. And the second level, actually, what we might be talking about might be really important. Mm. And we're whispering, we're not just having a chat about what we did on the weekend. So one, don't treat me like a child because I'm not a child, I'm a professional autonomous adult. And secondly, a lot of these well-being ideas like the you've been mugged and that it's just like, it's just like giving treats to a kid. Like, I don't want to be treated like a child when it comes to my well-being. Just treat me like an adult. And so that's, I think, what makes me cringe is this tokenistic, childlike approach, like little pat on the head, well done. Mm. That just gets on my nerves. And when I think about my work in the music industry, like, the words well-being were never really used because for a couple of reasons. One, I think generally speaking, this isn't to say the music industry doesn't have stress and challenges and all the rest of it. Generally speaking, the work was conducive to well-being, mm. as in we didn't have to work stupidly long hours. Um, there was flexible working. If I needed to come in late one morning because my fridge had packed in and I'm, an engineer was coming around, that was okay. I was fairly autonomous. I was in charge of my workload. I could decide when I have that meeting, when I'm going to deliver that deadline, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We had an in-house gym in in this one publishing company I worked for. It was up to us if we went or not. It was subsidized. Basically, things were in place that if you want to support your well-being, they're there for you. Mm. If not, it's still your choice. 
And I just think a lot of what happens in school is either enforced well-being, like we're all going to do yoga after school because yoga is good for well-being, you know, um, or it's, um, I don't know, it's <laughs> well-being as a thing in, in teaching and education because actually the conditions that we're expected to work in are not conducive to well-being. Yeah. So long hours, lack of autonomy. Um, trust, communication. You know, lack of trust. Yeah. You are told what to teach and how to teach it, rigid timetables. Yeah. All of these things erode our, our well-being and therefore we have to make well-being a thing. And so, yeah, it's all of that mixed into one that makes me cringe and also resist and want to change things. Yeah. And like I, I've been in my head comparing it to kind of a romantic relationship. Like the the, the strength of a ro romantic relationship is the the trust and the independence and the communication and no amount of chocolate or paying for them to go to yoga is going to make up for like a crappy situation is it, or a crappy relationship. So that's mm. where people need to, I think, separate the, the, the two, the like what's actually providing a foundation for a good working environment or a good relationship and what is just a nice gesture. Yeah. Because yeah, if I had a girlfriend at the moment, I would buy her the occasional uh, box of chocolates and get her flowers and take her out to dinner. Those are nice gestures. But if I, yeah. if that wasn't on a foundation of doing things day in, day out, the simple things, talking to each other, doing nice things together, um, having our independence from each Listening, other. Listening, respect. Exactly, exactly. Then it all just, yeah. it doesn't matter, doesn't it? We'd call that an abusive relationship mm. if someone just tried to make up for it with with little treats and and things. So yeah. oh, I don't know if we're uh, laboring the point here, but um, I, I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on it. And you know, the one other bugbear that I have that I'll share before we move on, because <laughs> I do want to move on, is when people like, they post the photo of like going for a walk with their kids saying, this is good for my well-being." I'm like, what? This is just going for a walk yeah. with your kids. Like it's a beautiful <laughs> thing that you've got children, that you're outside and you're playing with them, but not everything has to be good for your well-being or bad for your well-being. That's my other, my, yeah. my, my signing off comment. <laughs> <laughs> but let, let's talk about um, children in our schools and, mm. and their well-being. Now, of course, we want our children to grow up to be happy, healthy, thriving humans. And perhaps traditionally we've thought that schools, well, well, the role is to um, teach them well so that they can get to university, have that high, high aspirations of getting to university and then going on and getting a really high paid job, getting married, you know, having the fancy car and the new house. And so that's our responsibility to get them there and then they'll be happy. Mm. Um is this the case? Is that is this going to bring us happiness as long as we get the high-paying job and the nice house and the car? Well, this is this is why I find the science of well-being really interesting because it challenges a lot of our preconceived assumptions and a, and a lot of like our social narratives about what will make us happy. So, as you were talking, you know what I was what was coming up in my head is a well-known phrase in the science of well-being literature, which is the hedonic treadmill. Mm -hmm which is basically, so hedonic as in, let's say, pleasurable side of things, positive emotions, like feeling good, um, which is just one aspect of uh, what contributes to our happiness and well-being. Um, the hedonic treadmill is basically, um, we set ourselves like a goal, like I need to get three A's to get into university, and then that will make me happy because actually studying, revising, there's no joy in that whatsoever, or, or it's hard, you know, I'm not really enjoying it, having to sacrifice going out, seeing my friends. But when I get into Bristol Uni to do medicine, then I'm going to feel happy. OK, we get our three A's, woohoo! slight jubilation. And then it's like, OK, back down to earth. I'm a first year, don't know anything about medicine, you know, blah, blah, six, seven years down the line. When I get my doctor's qualification and I've, I'm, a, I'm a junior doctor, then I'll be happy get your qualification, woohoo, slight jubilation, and then kind of back down to, to where you were before. And so essentially what happens is when we achieve our goals, we do experience a kind of slight uptick in our levels of happiness or well-being or positive emotions. But very quickly, we come back to like this previous baseline. And so the hedonic treadmill is basically that our happiness is constantly evading us mm. because we set goals for the future, we achieve them, 
we feel momentary happiness, we come back to this kind of baseline, and then we're not satisfied. We need another something else, you know. And the treadmill is basically we never actually get there because we're constantly striving for something in the future, which we achieve, we adapt to, back to baseline, and you know, and so on and so forth. So yeah, th this narrative of you know doing well in school, going to uni, getting the job you want, none of it leads to long term happiness because of the hedonic treadmill. What stays constant, basically, so our jobs, our grades, right, once we've achieved them, we adapt to and therefore we get no sustained positive feelings, emotions from them. And I'm sure, you know, people listening to this, you and I can all relate to that. Mm. You know, getting our A-levels, getting our degrees, whatever, you know, getting that promotion, becoming a member of SLT or, or whatever, you do in the short term feel like a bit of a buzz and then very quickly you're back to where you were before so yeah that's not the key to to improved happiness and well-being the things that we we know do make a difference are things that I, and I know you kind of focus on this a lot what professor laurie, laurie santos who's a lecturer at um yale university says um like healthy living has a big impact on our everyday happiness and well-being so eating well sleeping well and exercising like those are like foundations to our health and well-being and when we prioritize them as in we give them you know conscious thought and consideration we think about our own unique needs and how we like to move our bodies and what we like to eat etc when we really start to focus on sleep nutrition and exercise you know, very quickly, actually, we might notice we start to feel much better about ourselves when we when we get those things more aligned to, to what we need. And then other things that research shows we don't adapt to as well are close personal relationships. So, uh, and the reason we don't adapt to them as easily, we there's some adaption, is because they're constantly changing and evolving. Like no one person stays the same throughout their lives. So you talked about romantic relationship earlier you know my wife and I we've been married 10 years no it's 10 years next year <laughs> um but we've been together 15 like our relationship is completely different now to when we first got together we've got two kids we've got a puppy a house like we're constantly changing we go through life changes whether it's perimenopause whether it's turning 40 you know all of these things and so we never adapt to to each other because we're constantly changing uh, but but close personal relationships we know from the research is probably the number one factor that affects our our health our happiness and well-being so yeah we i think we've been constantly told and we're still being told that happiness we're looking for happiness in the wrong places it's often in achievements it's often in material things like when i get that house or that car or that watch then you know ah oh, then i'll feel good and we feel good for a bit and then very quickly we feel unsatisfied whereas sleep nutrition exercise close personal relationships meaningful goals doing work that we enjoy but also gives us a sense of purpose all of these things genuinely contribute to our happiness and well-being in a longer term sustainable way and I think that's where we need to be teaching children as they grow up uh, and also ourselves as adults. We've been served these myths for years and we're still um, prone to believing in them. Yeah, trying to kind of unpick them and like de debug ourselves, aren't we? And we see this playing out in yeah. schools, I think, every day in terms of like the, the material stuff. It's like they're only doing their work to get a sticker or a chocolate or like you know cake at the end of the week because they've got 100% attendance or the highest attendance in the class or something like that like what are your yeah. thoughts around those kind of rewards for things stickers positive praise even positive praise I read a book about um what is it I'm behind me now I can't remember the title yeah the courage to be happy the courage to be punished by rewards no 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 it's, yeah. yeah but and it's based on yeah. the psychology of Adler Alfred Adler and he's talking about we should neither praise nor reprimand our children and like I, I haven't fully kind of like digested it yet and I don't really understand mm. like what he means and how that looks um I need to read the book again but but what are your thoughts around mm. that positive praise and and sweets and stickers yeah I mean the first thing to say is like our 
I've made all the mistakes as in I'm, I'm not sitting here when I, you know, um, if, if I'm coming across criticizing any ideas, I've, I've done them myself. So I have given certificates in the past. I've given lots of stickers. I've given lots of points. I used to have a whiteboard and like smiley face and, you know, and then again, just reading more widely around motivation. I discovered, um, so a brilliant book by Daniel Pink called Drive. And he explores their, you know, human motivation. And so in the past, and this is the other thing, we're, we're experiencing hangovers from psychology in the past, where in the past it was broadly thought and argued by psychologists that there were two main drivers of human behavior and motivation. One was biological. So we're motivated um, to find a mate. Uh, for food, for water, like, you know, we will approach or avoid situations based on biological drivers. Uh, and the second main driver of our behavior and motivation was kind of extrinsic threats and re rewards. So we will approach situations where we stand to gain something, whether it's a certificate, a promotion, a pay rise, and we will avoid situations where we there's a threat or a punishment. So I won't speed on the road because I know I'll get points on my license, for example. And then in the 70s, um, psychologists called uh, Desi um, kind of started to, to research a kind of third motivation, which was intrinsic motivation, that some people are motivated to do things and behave in certain ways purely for their own sake, not because they stand to gain anything, not because they stand to avoid a punishment, purely because they they want to, they're getting something out of the act itself. Um, and that, you know, Desi then teamed up with another psychologist called Ryan and Desi and Ryan developed this self-determination theory, which is three key pillars behind intrinsic motivation are a sense of autonomy. So feeling in control and you choosing to do those behaviors, not anyone else forcing you to do them. Uh, connectedness or relatedness, so feeling connected to other people, part of a team. Uh, and the third one was mastery. So, you know, feeling like you're good or competent at something, or if you're a complete beginner, feeling like you're making progress. And those three things, I think, have huge implications for the classroom. And I do think we should be moving away from extrinsic motivators, which is pretty much how every school I've ever worked in operates, which is let's reward the good stuff and the behavior we want to see, and let's punish the bad stuff that we don't. Whereas actually if we, and there's a place for that, don't get me wrong. It's not like let's just get rid, you know, that does impact human behavior. But what if we focus more on those three other aspects, like the connectedness, do your children feel a sense of belonging? Do they feel part of a team? Do they feel connected? Do you have a good relationship with your teacher in your class? What about mastery, which is essentially good teaching? How can we help children feel more competent in this area of learning? How can we help them make small steps of progress? And the third one is autonomy. How can we give children more control over their learning, their learning environments? And I think that is the big one that we don't think about because we've got 30 kids in a classroom. How can we give them all autonomy? And I think we're massively missing a trick there. And autonomy can be given just in small ways. It's like an example I often give is, let's say you're teaching an English unit and it's non-chronological report writing. We're all going to write a newspaper report, right? What often happens is we do a model text as a teacher mm -hmm. and then we say, right, you're going to do your own version and you're just going to kind of tweak it. But we're all still writing a newspaper report about Goldilocks and the three bears, you know? No autonomy there whatsoever. What if we taught, the, the structure, the key aspects of newspaper report writing. And then we said, right, you're going to research your own topic, something you are really interested in, whether it's Man City football team or whatever. So you're giving them that sense of control. We're all still learning the same thing. The same learning objectives are being ticked off and achieved, but you have that control over, you know, that child in theory is going to be way more motivated to want to, write that newspaper report because oh, I get to I get to research and, and write about Minecraft, which that's all I ever bloody talk about at home and in school. You know, I just think autonomy is massively underinvested 
underinvested mm. in in schools and we're missing a trick. Yeah. But like you said, it's so hard, isn't it? Like I've, we, yeah, we've done yeah, this yeah. in our school, you know, they've, they've got, um, we, we have a unit of personal projects where children can choose their own topic mm. and even they can choose their genre of writing that they want to kind of, um, okay. uh, yeah, pursue like on that topic as well. And yeah, the children are more motivated and more focused, but for like 50% of the children, what they come out with is just not great. It's just not great because they haven't <laughs> yeah. had that structure of the whole class is yeah. doing this topic. So we've got all of that vocabulary. We've got some of those like sentence stems and everything. It's all there. And yeah. so it's like finding that balance. I can understand if someone was listening saying like, well, yeah, that's it's, it's easier said than done. And I'm sure you understand that, don't you? So it's like, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah what, 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 what would, how would you answer that? I guess. Well, I guess I guess you would still do that same input. So, so those kind of sentence stems would probably broadly be the same, um, whether you're writing about Man City or whether you're writing about Goldilocks and the Three. You know, right. th- that's kind of what I mean. Like you can still give the same teaching input, but but the freedom, that autonomy, that sense of control is okay. You're going to write about this topic. You're choosing to write about that. So there's. Yeah, and that's why it doesn't have to be like completely free reign. Like, right, guys, it's English now. Write whatever you like. <laughs> you can read, you can write. It's not about that. Like, we're still teaching some it's core still narrowed it down, knowledge yeah. and some core skill. Yeah, it's just thinking about how we can give. Even the sense of control is important, and I don't mean kind of hoodwinking, you know, duping. Like, oh, I've pretended you've got control, and you don't really. I don't mean that. <laughs> But just giving children some sense that they've got control. So um, I know some schools, and again, you know. <laughs> You've always got a caveat, haven't you? There's always got to be a caveat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some schools will do like those chilli challenges, say for maths. So you've got mild, medium, hot. I've never heard Have of these. No, I've never like okay. ready, steady, go, traffic lights. I've never heard of chilli. Okay, yeah. Okay, so it's just mild, medium, hot, and it's basically it gets increasingly more difficult. But and some people say, oh, you know, that's bad because it's putting a limit on children's learning. And it's like, well, no, actually, if the mild, if the ba- if if the the main task that everyone has the opportunity to do is like the core focus of that lesson, then the the medium and the hot is just going deeper. Right. But either way you're giving children that sense of control. Like, okay, I I feel really confident today in this learning, so I'm going to go straight for the, the medium or what, whatever it is. Um, and even if you've got children, because this is the criticism, some children stay in their comfort zones and they just mm-hmm. go for the mild, the mild, the mild, you know, the, the first task. Well, actually, with a good, again, this is where the, the relatedness comes in and the mastery. Like, as the teacher, I'm going to go up to that child and say, look, Look, Sam, I can see that you want to do the mild, but I know I saw you, I marked your work yesterday and you did brilliantly. So I would really like you to start on this sheet today. Let's see how you get on. Just do a couple and I'll check back in with you. And, you know, that's where our relationship comes in. That's where my knowledge of you comes in. That's where I can start to nudge you out of your comfort zone and, and give you that confidence to try something. But But again, all of those three things are active then. You know, autonomy, I'm getting you to to have some sense of control. Relatedness, I know what you're capable of. And I think, actually, come on, Sam, I reckon you can have a go at this. And mastery is, look, at the end of that lesson, I told you, you were going to do the mild, but actually done the medium and you've got 80% of these questions right. So tomorrow, when we come back to maths, I want you to start on the, the medium, you know. So... That's that. I just think that I just think those three things should be on our mind when we're teaching and planning our, our lessons and, and our activities. Is how can we give children more sense of autonomy and control? Mm. How can we develop those relationships? And how can we increase their sense of mastery and competence in whatever we're teaching? Um, and and I just think it's a constant work in progress. But over time think teachers and children will just enjoy the learning process more when those three things are consciously kind of factored in mm. Mm. and so almost then you wouldn't need is what you're saying then you wouldn't need so much of the positive praise you wouldn't need so much of the stickers and and all that kind of stuff because of that environment that you've created 
if we had to sum that up. Yeah, and I just think, yeah, I just think like in terms of, okay, what do you do instead of stickers and, and certificates and stuff? It's just acknowledge. Like that's where the, the relatedness aspect of self-determination theory comes in. So when I'm teaching, I am acknowledging what my students are doing how they're making progress and, and just helping them see that they're making progress. And that's where that mastery comes in. Like, wow, if you look at, if we just go back a few pages, look at your writing just a week ago and look at it today. Can you see that, like getting the students to see the progress they're making? Like that's the whole point of intrinsic motivation. Like you don't need some external reward. So yeah, pr uh, you know, light touch praise, I've got no issue with. Like don't go over the top, but just help, students see the progress that they're making that is motivation enough like if i can see that i'm better at something now than i was a week ago am i going to want to try harder to improve yeah of course i am yeah. like who wouldn't so yeah i do think there's less of a need for stickers and and certificates and external extrinsic moat rewards when you know more about things like self-determination theory. Because just one other thing, Sam, Go is on. that what the research shows as well is that sometimes when children are intrinsically motivated to do something, actually introducing extrinsic rewards like stickers and certificates actually reduces their motivation. I was about to and, say And this, this is the yeah. key thing. Yeah. yeah. So it becomes counterproductive because you introduce a, an external reward and then you know, they expect that reward in the future. So, okay, what, you're going to give stickers and certificates every single lesson or every single week? Um, and, yeah, I coach under I, – I coach youth football, right? My son's uh, in Tring Tornadoes football team under sixes. And every week we used to give a, a kind of – not man of the match, but, you know, player of the, the session – and there were, I think we gave out two and there's 40 kids. Right. And in my head, I was thinking, this is a bad idea. This is a terrible idea. Like, anyway, we did it for a season and basically every week get in the car with my son, daddy, why didn't I get the trophy this week? I was like, well, because not everyone can, you know, blah, blah, blah. and then he gets it, you know, week 15. Um, and then it's like, Oh, daddy, I don't want to go this week. Why? Because I've got the trophy. Like, I don't need to. Kind of like, like, why is he, he doesn't need to try as hard now because he's got it and he knows he's not going to get it next week because everyone gets it, basically. Anyway, I, we had this meeting with the coaches and I just said, guys, I think we should get rid of the, the trophies because, and I just briefly explained self-determination <laughs> theory over a beer with these coaches and just said, look, I don't think it's doing the good we, we think it is. Because basically, once you've got it, why are you going to try hard the next week? Mm. And also, most of the kids are, you can see it. Most of the kids are disappointed when they don't get it. And I just think it's doing more harm than good. And like now, we're under eights. We just don't do it. And the kids don't ask about it. And every week, the kids are having fun and they're making progress. And that's all that matters. Yeah. So yeah, that's my thoughts. I'm just it. imagining you at that, that moment in the pub where like all, all the rest of the guys are looking at each other, oh, who invited Adrian again, man? <laughs> Talking about yeah. <laughs> But anyway, no, and yeah. it's funny that you said that because that's what I was about to um, bring up. The, uh, I don't know, do you, do you listen to Andrew Huberman? Do you listen to his podcast? Do you know him? I do. Not, not really. Yeah, yeah, I love him. Yeah, um, yeah so he is someone that I... He yeah. like when he talks about motivation and reward a couple of times he brings up this study and I think they talk about uh, I think it was a a school where they kind of noticed what the children were interested in and what they worked really hard on and then they singled out the group that loved drawing and they loved artwork so they'd always be doing their artwork anytime they had kind of free play or whatever they'd be drawing and then they introduced stickers like saying oh well done you did really well here's a sticker for your artwork and of course guess what happened those children fell out of love with with doing it and they they stopped drawing as much they stopped yeah doing art as much stop painting as much it's it's interesting um and it makes mm. me thinking about something else that i've been hearing more about recently which is reward and praise and how that ideally is like directed at, uh, at children's effort and adults effort i suppose as well um 
So mm-hmm. we are praising the effort. We're not praising the like result. We're not saying, oh, well done. You got 90% on your maths test. We're saying you worked really hard for that, didn't you? You you were independent. You took yourself off and you studied and you revised for it. So that idea that if we, if we um, kind of reinforce the effort, that will serve people in a much, um, you know, in, in a long term won't it and and it will be able to be applied yeah. to so many different areas of their life rather than just oh you're great you're great you did this you got this medal excellent because of course then yeah they, they, they'll lose the motivation or that you know the competition where they don't get the medal um then they feel despondent mm. and they don't know what to do and they've kind of an emotional yeah. wreck whereas actually if we keep reinforcing you tried and you applied and you sh- you you showed determination here and perseverance like that surely would serve people much better as they grow up yeah and and that's that's the key idea behind growth mindset isn't it like mm. Carol Dweck calls that process praise. Praise the process, acknowledge the determination, the effort, the fact that you changed strategy when you worked out that the first one wasn't working. Um, And it does, you know, when I read about process praise, rather than focusing on the result, that did make me think about the research behind happiness and well-being, that if you can find satisfaction so whether it's pleasure, whether it's purpose in the journey itself, then you you are less likely to fall foul of the hedonic treadmill because you're not just focused on the end result. You're actually learning to enjoy the process of getting to that end result. And yeah, you can celebrate the achievement. Like, you know, we're not. I'm not talking about being a robot here. If I if I achieve something, like, you know, my last book won an award. Is that going to make me feel happy? Yes. But am I just writing that book to get an award? That's not a recipe for life satisfaction. So enjoy as much as you can the process and then any accolades, rewards, certificates are a nice bonus. Yeah. So don't just focus on the, the end result, focus on the process. Yeah, is a I think a great r- recipe for finding greater satisfaction in life, whatever you do. Yeah, for sure. And it's something that I've been thinking about and learning about in the last five years or so, that enjoying of the process. And what I think Mm. we can can do is kind of almost trick ourselves to enjoy the process. There are some things that, Mm. you know, some kind of life admin, sometimes, you know, I sit down and I have to edit some videos and I just don't feel in the mood or something. But if you kind of almost trick yourself and just remind yourself, like, I can just enjoy this process. It's okay. I can relax my face. I can unclench my shoulders and just kind of have a good time with it, you know, enjoy it. Yeah. It just becomes easier. And like it happened the other day, the other morning, I kind of woke up. I knew I had to do um, a bit of video editing and get it done and posted. And I was like, oh, I was just dreading it. And I was just thinking of all the other things I could <laughs> be doing. But then I was like, like, there's there's no excuse really. Like the only moment I've got right now is here and now. I can choose to be mm. frustrated and impatient with this task, or I can just relax and lean into it and try and enjoy it and just see what happens. And like this big dumb smile came across my face, and I just <laughs> I just got the video done. I just got the video done in like record yeah. time, and then moved on to something else. Like I, I just think that whole mindset and and. Uh, like yeah all that those approaches are really really interesting oh. yeah <laughs> so i'm thinking where where we can i used to oh, go on go on <laughs> no just just on that point like uh, this might be me being a bit weird but i used to um I used to enjoy revising for for exams and, and it's partly because and, and this might seem slightly contradictory now but basically what I'm about to say but I used to chunk I didn't know about chunking at the time no one taught me about it but let's say I'm revising for my A-level history I used to think right I'm going to do an hour's revision I want in that hour I want to do x y and z or cover this topic and then in an hour's time I'm going downstairs I'm having a cup of tea and a hot cross bun and I'm going to watch 20 minutes of Holmes under the hammer (laughs) like so I would reward myself but great program. you know with, with so i had something to look forward to which was basically a break a treat you know whatever and yeah I, there was less resistance when i did that and that hour flew by because i was able to like fully focus mm-hmm. i wasn't i mean back at the back in the day i didn't have this sat next yeah. to me which i think massively helped 
But I was able for that hour to experience flow, got absorbed. It went by really quickly. I was like, great, five more minutes and I've got a cup of waiting, for, you know. And I just think sometimes that can help as well. Like give yourself some kind of reward, but it's it's not an external, like someone's going to give me a certificate. It's like a self-applied um, reward. Yeah. Like I'm going to have something to look forward to at the end of editing this video. I'm going to go for a walk or go for a, like whatever it is, but treat yourself so that there's a, per, you know, if all you've got to do in a day is edit videos and you really don't want to do it, it's going to be quite a long old day. But if you chunk up that day with little breaks and things to look forward to in those breaks, I think the day goes by far more quickly. Yeah. Well, I think it's that that self-imposed part of it. That's the key, isn't it? Like yeah. You've decided what the reward will be. You've decided on the time frames. Yeah. And it makes me think about... Um, you know, exercise, like I go to the gym and, and like pour with sweat because of how intense like the workout is. I've decided to do that because I know like the results mm. I want to get and the goal. But if someone like handcuffed me and took me to a gym and was like whipping me and forcing me to do that session, I'd have a completely <laughs> different mind frame, wouldn't I? It'd be horrible yeah. um, to think of like how fa fast my heart is racing and how much I'm sweating. It'd be uh, like the worst experience ever, but it's because I've decided to, it's, it's the same with ice baths, isn't it? If someone like told me I had to get into the ice bath, yeah. it's very different to me choosing to lower myself in. So I think that aspect's really important. Yeah, yeah for sure. And also the things that are good for us, the things that like, so I've read, I've listened to Huberman about ice baths and cold showers and this and that. Like I've tried quite a few times. Like, I hate cold showers. <laughs> and, and so like that at the moment, at this point in my life, I've tried them like cold water therapy for me. There is just too much resistance right. for at the moment. Whereas I know other people, I'm not saying that like you will enjoy them, but you have, enough of an approach and yeah you can do it whereas right now at this moment in time when I have a cold shower I bloody hate it and so I don't do it even though I know the literature and the research that actually would probably do me some good and I think again it often comes back to autonomy the things mm. that even have been proven to be good for our well-being we still need to make sure that it's right for yeah, us yeah. and it fits with our mindset our lifestyle there's things that I do that's good for my well-being that you might not do, or you do like your. I've, I follow your journey on Instagram. Your level of physical activity makes me feel exhausted <laughs> just thinking about it. Um, but that, but it suits you in your lifestyle. You know, the the physical activity that I do now, the most intense is playing football once a week and going for a five k run on the weekend. Most of the week, it's it's mainly walking. I try and do twelve to 15,000 steps. But that works for me. And I think this is the other thing, isn't it? It's, it's and again, it's autonomy. It's like you're in control. Like, what is it that works for you? Adapt your habits, routines, your lifestyles to, 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 suit, to suit you. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And the only reason I can be that, physical that often is because you know I, I live alone I don't have any children you have two children don't you it's just a completely different yeah. situation isn't it and you know I'm sure yeah, exactly. in the future when circumstances change that you know a, a 5k in football sounds sounds great to me and yeah I post about the same thing <laughs> like it, we, we, we want to be active but that doesn't mean like killing yourself in the gym or training for a half marathon. It's just, it's just moving your body, isn't mm. it? As, as often and as, yeah, you know, outdoors if possible and just whatever you enjoy. So I guess we've kind of, um, yeah. uh, moved into adult wellbeing. Um, I'm aware of the time. And so I'm thinking, well, it, it might not be a completely, uh, comprehensive conversation on this, but like, I can't talk to you without, um, mentioning adult well-being and staff well-being in schools particularly um, just to get some of your thoughts um, I guess what I'm wondering from your perspective is one like the the state of staff well-being in schools like what what do you make of it that you, you go into schools don't you and you deliver training like what what's your sense of it yeah um, and I'm also wondering what you think about and we've we've touched on this a little but about kind of the personal responsibility in terms of 
our well-being if we work in a school, but also changes that might need to happen in schools um, across the country. So if you can share your thoughts, yeah. that'd be great. Yeah, so so you're right. Basically, like two broad uh, aspects that affect our well-being as, say, teachers or educators in school are our individual um, habits, routines, behaviours, so like our personal responsibility for our mental health and well-being, and then also like let's say the culture and ethos of the school like is it conducive to well-being so you know you and i i know we try and practice what we preach we both apply a lot of what we have read and learned about what contributes to mental health and well-being to our own lives around physical activity nutrition sleep uh, journaling all of these other things okay however if you work in a toxic environment so you work in a school where you're experiencing bullying or where you don't feel safe because let's say there's some really um, challenging behavior from kids and you don't have the support of senior leadership to, to, you know, then everything that you're doing is going to be tested to the absolute max. Like the, the things that you're doing that personally are good for your well-being are going to help, no doubt about it. But ultimately you're going to feel like you're just, treading water or constantly firefighting the whole time. Um, and that's not, it, it's not sustainable. Like you can do that for a certain period of time and you either then have to leave the school and find a different context or you might decide, you know, I've just got to leave teaching because this is just too much. Mm -hmm. So yeah, both things are, are massively important. And I would say, look, if you're teaching or working in a school at the moment and you feel like you're struggling, um, kind of reflect, would a different school context help you? Because I've worked in three different schools and, you know, they're all completely different ecosystems. And I have felt really happy in two of them and, and not so happy in one of them. And why was I not so happy in one of them? One, it was personal circumstances. I'd just become a dad. I was sleep deprived. <laughs> you know, my focus was less on school and more about home. But also in that context, I worked for a head teacher who was a self-described workaholic. And so they were working long hours. They were texting me on my personal phone on a Friday night at nine o'clock. No joke, no exaggeration about school stuff. And I did not want to think about school stuff then. And so basically in that school, I was clashing with the culture and ethos, the expectations of me. And it wasn't conducive to, to satisfaction, health, well-being. My current school is, I would call, a, a far more humane place to work. Like the expectations are realistic. The people are understanding. You know, the people I work for have, so the head and deputy have, have young kids and families. So they understand the challenges that come with that. And so, you know, staff in my current school, because we survey staff well-being twice a year, I would say, you know, they would recommend our school as a great place to work, mm. the vast majority. They say they feel supported by SLT. They say things like, um, I get on well with my colleagues and we make a good team, even though they also say that they feel excessive levels of stress, right? So those two things can be true, right? And why is that? Is it because of the culture and ethos? I would say no. I would say that that is a systemic working in education at the moment is stressful, uh, you've you've got a jam-packed curriculum um, and not enough time to teach it. You've got post-pandemic, I would say, more children with more diverse needs and not necessarily the resources to kind of know how to, to help them. Uh, and so that increases our stress levels. But working in an environment like my school means you can mitigate a lot of that stress or cope better with it because you're supported there's realistic expectations. You've got SLT modeling, mm -hmm. going home at reasonable hours, not work, you know? So yeah, I've probably waffled a bit there, but no. systemically there's a lot of challenges in teaching right now, a lot, the ones I've listed. And then on a smaller scale, you've got the culture and ethos of the school massively impacts your day-to-day -day experience. And then personally, you've got that control autonomy responsibility to take good care of yourself and this is one of the things that I try and say to educators when I go into schools is like we 
we have chosen to work in a profession that experiences levels of stress that are higher than the national average. You know, teaching is up there with nursing and midwifery, according to the health and safety executive, as being one of the most stressful professions you can work in in the UK. And because of that, because we're going into an environment every day that has high levels of challenge, we have to take extra care of ourselves because basically the the conditions are ones that are prone. We're more prone to burnout. We're more prone to experiencing mental health difficulties. So that personal responsibility, I think, becomes even more important to cope and thrive in those challenging situations. Yeah, I agree with everything um, that you've said there. Um, like you said, a a teaching profession, or if you're in the if you're working in a hospital, you know, these are worthwhile, mm. meaningful jobs. And what worthwhile yeah. or meaningful job will not come with stress and feeling exhausted at times because you're doing something that's impactful. So of course it's going to get tough at times and it's going to be relentless because you're having such a big impact. But of course we have to, yeah. to balance that out, don't we? And I really, I really like the yeah. way you mentioned that the balance between personal responsibility and the actual change. And it makes me think of a few things like, you know, I, I spoke at the, the Brewed um, Brum events a couple of weekends ago, mm. and this is exactly what I talked about, that, you know, I have... I had all these habits in place that were really serving me and and helping me. They have for for many years kept me fit and healthy and energetic. But I had a, a year last year where I just felt like absolute crap and because of certain circumstances mm. for that year. And it was like no amount of exercise could have sorted that out, no amount of meditation, no amount of healthy eating, you know, like you said, I was just kind of keeping my head above water and was still kind of struggling in, in, in many aspects. But at the same time, I think, well, what could it have been like if I hadn't have had those habits in place already? So I, I feel like yeah. these habits are like a buffer, aren't they? They're a buffer against stress. And I'm sure I've heard lots yeah. of other people talk about this and describe it in this way. It's like you're giving yourself a little bit of leeway to kind of face the challenging situations at work, um, personal life, family life, whatever it is because you've got those habits already in place and they've formed a foundation. Like who knows where I would yeah. have been last year if I didn't have those things. Not like nothing nothing overly dramatic, but maybe maybe I would have yeah. thought like, oh, I need to leave this school. This isn't right for me. Maybe I would have th- taken a lot of time off work. I don't know, but you know, I had the habits yeah. in place and at least they were serving me. But that doesn't, um, that doesn't, underplay the fact that of course people get into really really tough situations like you said toxic cultures colleagues and things that like mm. it's really really tough and that's when we have to think well well what what can be changed here and i just i wish people yeah. would be a bit more brave in in that those circumstances circumstances excuse me to to speak up and say this yeah. isn't right or even just to leave the school so many people kind of i think get themselves into a position where they feel like they can't leave, they can't say anything. And it's like we need to call people out on their bull stuff <laughs> a little bit more often. Yeah. And maybe the habits that we put in yeah. place give us the more confidence and more energy to be able to do that. I don't know. Yeah. Do, do you know what? It, it's, it's a catch-22 because, as you will know from personal experience, and I've experienced the same, it's like, look, when you are struggling – like emotionally, mentally, um, there's a whole cascade of things that start to happen. So like one of the things that, that is often first affected is your sleep, yeah. right? You will find it harder to sleep at night when you're really stressed. And basically when you don't sleep as well, you feel more stressed the next day. Um, you eat I read badly. A brilliant book. Have you, you don't read? exercise. Yeah, you start Sorry, to eat. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But so there's there's um, a book called Lifetime by Professor Russell Foster, who's um, – basically professor of circadian neuroscience at the university of oxford so a sleep scientist and one of the things that i didn't know i kind of knew instinctively but didn't know that research backs this up is basically after a poor night's sleep your negativity bias goes through the roof so your propensity to catastrophize and see the bad in everything just exacerbates right so basically every day let's say you're in a a working environment where you're stressed, you don't sleep so well, you wake up next day, you're more tired, more stressed. 
you feel like the day is going to be awful, etc. You're basically in the complete wrong frame of mind to challenge the status quo and challenge things because you it erodes your confidence you don't have the energy you're just in survival treading water mode and so yeah it is it is really hard like you're right we do need to be brave but we it's the last thing we feel like right yeah and that's why having you know resilience is less about an individual trait and more about the support network we have around us what enables us to challenge things is basically if we know people in our school will have our back. Mm. So if we speak up in that staff meeting and we're the only voice and we get shut down, well, we're never going to do that again. Whereas if we, if we challenge something, we say, look, do we really have to have a, a meeting next week after school on top of parents evening? And two or three other colleagues say, actually, we could really do, you know, we got that support network. Then we, things start to change because it's not us lone voice trying to challenge things it's actually i've got i've got some colleagues i've got some teammates here that are gonna support me so yeah i would say if you're going through a tough time then definitely reach out to colleagues have your allies you know people that you can talk to even if you're not challenging things just having someone to vent to that will listen um non-judgmentally is can be hugely empowering uh, and might be just what you need to get you through that tough period before things start to improve. Mm-hmm. And also I just say like things will improve, even if you can't see it at the moment, like your testament to that. I've been through really difficult periods in the past and I'm testament to it. You know, things will improve, even if it means taking a break from teaching, even if it means leaving that school, finding somewhere else, even if it means being signed off for a period, you know, just to have that headspace to regroup and think, okay, what is it that I really need right now? Yeah, things will improve. Okay, there's there's help and support out there for you. Other people have gone through similar things. It's not just you. Um, yeah, I think just knowing that can be also enough to get you through a tough time. For sure. Really important message. Thanks for sharing that. I'm not going to add anything to it. That was That was great. If you could change just one thing, if you woke up tomorrow and you were, you know, in charge of schools around the UK, what's one thing you'd change? In primary education, I would strip about 30 to 40% of the content out of the curriculum. Don't ask me what (laughs) at this point. I haven't thought that, that forensically. But there is too much. And basically, when there's too much to teach in a finite amount of time, you are going to feel constantly stressed, constantly that you're not on top of your to-do list and constantly that you're not doing a good job. And so by stripping out a whole load of content, I think you'd have more breathing space, you'd have more time in the week to revisit content that your kids haven't got. I think it would just be more enjoyable and satisfying. So essentially, you'd be giving teachers more time and time is one of the most underrated things when it comes to our well-being. So strip out a whole load of content. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you, Adrian. Um, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your schedule to come and chat to me on this uh, rather wet, cloudy Friday morning. Um, it's been great. Like we, We've covered so much and it's just always so good to connect with someone that is like-minded. And yeah, I, I always enjoy when we when we chat, when we DM each other on Twitter and stuff. Like it, It's always great to connect with you. Yeah, likewise. I'm going to finish off with three questions that I asked every ask every guest, and they're quite kind of quick fire. You can ask, answer them as short as you like. The first one is, what's one lesson you wish you'd have been taught when you were a child? Um, is basically it's okay to sit with and be with and feel uncomfortable thoughts and emotions. You don't have to run away from them. You don't have to change them. You can just learn to relax into them. And what's one habit that you've maybe introduced to your life that has really made a difference and maybe listeners could introduce to their lives to to help them feel happier and healthier? I have started to go to bed about 20 minutes earlier than I used to. And one, I'm either getting more sleep or if I'm not tired, I'm reading more. 
But mm. either way, those two things we know are good for well-being, extra reading, extra sleep. So just go to bed 20 minutes earlier every night and see if it makes a difference. Sounds good to me. And if you could give everyone in the world one book, which book would you give them? Uh, it would probably be Happier by Professor Tal Ben-Shahar, was a psychologist at Harvard University. It's really short, it's really practical, and it's probably, yeah, one of the best books on happiness that I've read and I still use the lessons today. Great answers. Love it. Thank you so much again for, for coming on and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch very soon, I'm sure. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. So thank you for tuning in. I really hope you found my conversation with Adrian insightful. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it interesting. You can also support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thanks again, and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.